Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Every year, the United States celebrates Martin Luther King Jr. Day in honor of MLK's life and legacy. The gains made by the civil rights movement under his leadership are a powerful example of what can be accomplished through strategic nonviolent action. But how much do we really know about MLK and the nonviolent activism of the civil rights movement? How do we continue to move Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision forward in our world today? In this series of short episodes, we'll be exploring the six principles of Kingian nonviolence which were the underlying moral values and beliefs that guided MLK's life and activism. Each episode in this series will focus on one of the six principles of Kingian nonviolence. Welcome to episode four, accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve the goal. I'm your host, Jaren Peterson-Dean. I'm here with Peter Digitali Anderson, Program Director and the Director of Formation at Peace Catalyst International. Peter leads workshops on the topic of nonviolent living that draw directly from the six principles of Kingian nonviolence. He will be our guide as we seek a deeper understanding of the nonviolent principles and practices that were so integral to MLK's life and leadership. Peter, thanks so much for joining us again and sharing your knowledge. The fourth principle of Kingian nonviolence, to accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve the goal. How was this principle a part of the civil rights movement? Excellent question. King viewed this idea of accepting suffering without retaliation as essential to the success of the civil rights movement. And this was both a moral principle, but also a strategic one. Accepting suffering wasn't a new idea to most Black Americans. History of slavery, Jim Crow, constant verbal and physical abuse, social exclusion. In many of these cases throughout the history of white supremacy and where Blacks have been placed in society and how they've been treated, fighting back would have made things worse or gotten them killed. Many Black Americans knew that retaliation was not going to help them, at least on, the, on an individual level. And for King, by choosing to accept suffering as a way of facing the violence rather than trying to escape it, civil rights activists were reclaiming their power and reclaiming their moral authority and shining a light back on those who were doing the harm to bring the light, to elevate, to show the world what was happening. And the, the acceptance of suffering while nonviolently resisting was part of how they chose to attack the forces of evil while extending grace to the people who are doing the evil. 
And I also really want to emphasize in the last episode, we talked about the, the danger of having these nice highfalutin ideas that are harmful to people who are stuck in the mix of it. So recognizing that this was also very strategic and very practical for King is an essential part of how nonviolence works. So for King, the, this principle of accepting suffering was highly strategic. Martin Luther King Jr. was all about moral theater. This principle emphasizes that suffering has a goal and it's for the sake of the cause. It's not just blindly accepting the suffering and giving love back with no purpose, no intention, no objective behind it. King knew that for a nonviolent campaign to win, they needed to catch the public's attention. They needed drama. The civil rights campaigns were widely televised and photographed. Activists wanted the media to show up. They wanted to persuade apathetic citizens across the country to care about their cause. To do that, they needed people to see the activists' courage and determination and restraint while police and white supremacists were attacking them and their children with dogs and clubs and fire hoses. Civil rights campaigns won in part because they dramatized the violence in a way that citizens and leaders could no longer look away. So in that way, this principle is both a moral approach to saying, we're standing up for this, and yet we're going to love our community and love our enemy at the same time, and we're not going to harm you back. And it was also a very strategic element of how do we make this change a reality. How would you say you've applied this principle in your own activism? One of the ways I've been showing up here in the past couple of years is I volunteer with a group called Nonviolent Peace Force um, on their community safety team, which does like civilian protection and civilian accompaniment, um, which means that we have a team that we step into spaces of protests at community events, at polling stations, at neighborhoods, um, wherever we see the potential for conflict escalating and particularly violence, the possibility of violence against civilians. Um, and as peace builders and interveners in those situations, we're thinking about um, how do we receive a person's anger or their fear or their sense of overwhelm that is spilling over against others? How do we receive their suspicion of us? And how do we still engage in a way that de-escalates the situation? Or in keeping people safe at protests, we're like, we're directing traffic. Sometimes we help out with that. And some drivers, when they see a march, choose to force their way through the crowd. They don't always want to stop for what's going on. Or if we're providing a first aid to protesters while the police are encircling and about to kettle people in. Or if we're walking a protester through a police line to get them safely to their car, knowing that the police could choose to arrest any of us at any, any time in the process. Some of these I've been, I've actually been part of, some of these I know others on the team have done, but these are all examples of like, what does it look like to be able to show up, receive the violence or the possibility of violence and suffering from others. Um, and of course, this principle of choosing to accept suffering for a bigger purpose plays out in many other areas of our lives too. It's much more than just on the front lines of a protest. I'm glad you said that because I was listening to you and thinking about people who their initial reaction to suffering would be to act out potentially in a violent way. And I'm sure this goes back to the skill that we've been referencing throughout this series, but how can you shift someone's instinct for retaliation into a place where they're able to accept suffering for a greater good? A lot of this comes 
back to the will of nonviolence and people's underlying beliefs and why they're doing what they're doing. It's also tied to the skill. This is something we train ourselves in. A lot of our ability to respond to violence, to respond to suffering, and doing it in a way that is controlled, that is compassionate, that is focused, comes from us having tools and skills. If we go into this saying, with an attitude, oh, I want to love my enemy and I don't want to respond with violence back, but I don't know what else to do instead. If I haven't developed the intervention skills, if I haven't developed the nonviolent communication skills, if I haven't developed the personal internal mindfulness and, and awareness of my own body's reactions, uh, my somatic skills, then I'm not going to know what else to do instead. So there's skills we learn to do that. And we do that in community. When we are doing this with other people, it's a whole lot easier to respond in a loving and nonviolent way than if we are alone and doing it by ourselves. And for some people, like th this is a tricky principle. There's a reason why this is in the, the moral principle side of thing, which some people believe and some people don't. There are people who believe in the moral principled side of nonviolence. And like, this is, these are my values. This is the way I show up in the world and I'm going to embody them as the best I can. There are other people who are going to join a movement and they are doing it because they recognize the strategic value of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what they're about. King and other civil rights movements leaders had moral commitment cards that people had to sign that if I'm going to be part of this commitment, I will go to these trainings, I will act in this way. And they had teams of people that were helping to keep people in line, helping to, at the protest, keep people nonviolent. So it was a collective effort that people were agreeing to. And maybe that's what they did in the rest of their lives. Maybe that wasn't what they did in the rest of their lives. But it was a decision that they made in this moment for this cause to achieve this goal. We will all sign on to this. I'm wondering if mindfulness and perhaps even meditative practices could be helpful in this way of accepting something when it's really hard. Is that ever part of what you teach? It's integrated into a lot of it, yeah. One of the practices that we do when I'm out with Nonviolent Peace Force is we have this, this simple practice of a holistic check-in where we're checking in with our bodies, with our thoughts, with our feelings, and what we need from each other in that moment. We want to notice what's happening within us because that awareness, that mindfulness is what helps us to both know what we need to choose to meet our needs and helps us to be aware of what capacity we have for whatever comes next and to make choices off of that. So yeah, some form of both mental and emotional and somatic body awareness, mindfulness practices, I think are essential to be able to do as well. Peter, can you share a reflection question for us to think about this fourth principle of Kingian nonviolence? In this one, I want to get into a bit more the what does resilience and sustaining this practice look like? Because this is a difficult one that a lot of people aren't always going to agree with. And maybe there are times when it's not appropriate for people. So our question is, when in the past have you transformed the conflict by patiently receiving the aggression of others instead of retaliating in kind? And in your own context, what relationships or practices or rituals give you the strength and resilience to accept suffering in a positive and productive way? Thank you so much, Peter. Absolutely. Thank you. I've been talking with Peter Digitali Anderson. 
You can find more information about Peace Catalyst International, including upcoming workshops on nonviolence and conflict transformation at www.peacecatalyst.org. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.